Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. One of my students wrote at the end, through Management 2.0, that's my term, we millennials are trying to create the workplace that boomers wish they had but could never ask for. Mm-hmm. We're trying to create the workplace that boomers, and I'm in that boomer generation, you know, preached in the 1960s while I was walking in Montgomery, Alabama. But then we sort of, you know, fit into the IBMs and the GEs and the AT&Ts. Mm-hmm. And they're saying, that's not the way we want to do it. And we want organizations to stand for something more. And we want to be sure to be a part of that. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Hello, everyone. We are also joined by Todd Jick, a professor at Columbia Business School for the past 15 years, uh, previously taught at Harvard Business School, faculty director of the Ruben Mark Initiative for Organizational Character and Leadership, which I am very curious about. Todd, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the next generation, what you're seeing and experiencing and attempting with those minds that will be entering the workforce, shaping the workforce to come. But before we unpack that, we'd love to do our check-in round. And today's question is a really good one. Thanks. Our check-in round question for today is this one. Who was someone who was really important to you growing up? Aaron, I will start with you and then I'll go and we'll give Todd a second to contemplate. Hmm. Well, I think the the usual answers that very much apply for me would have to do with, you know, family and, and close friends. But I think I really responded more to Mr. Rogers than almost anyone else when I was mm-hmm. growing up. So that was a daily ritual. This was, of course, before Netflix or anything on demand. So it was like appointment television in the morning, tune in. And yeah, I mean, everybody, King Friday, Lady Fairchild, Mr. Rogers definitely shaped shaped me as a child. Nice. I've been really meaning to watch the documentary about Mr. Yeah. Rogers, but I haven't yeah, yeah, seen yeah. it yet. I got to get on that. For me, sure, lots of lots of close humans in my life, but but probably one person who had a really outsized impact on me was the cello teacher that I studied with from, I think, about age six or seven until I sort of graduated out of her maybe when I was in high school. So we probably had 10 years there until she was like, you know, you need a different level of teacher now. And there were so many things that I learned, you know, I studied with her at least once a week for 10 years or something like that. And so there were many lessons that were passed along to me. Um, But one of them was just, she was a person who was very articulate about the difference between talent and hard work and was someone who often self-identified as not having a tremendous amount of natural talent, 
but being mm. incredibly disciplined, which, you know, I've been the opposite in almost everything that I've ever done in my life. And so she was probably a, a really good teacher for me to have had for all of those years and had a lot of influence in terms of how I think about the world and about practice and about, you know, how you actually get good at things. Todd, nice. what about you? I'm going right down the middle between the two of you because I'm somewhere <laughs> between Mr. Mister Rogers and a teacher. And I'm going to be a little more conventional, Aaron, because I am going to choose my father. So I am going to be in the family because he was an educator. And so there I had you know the model of a teacher. But more importantly, he was an educator who said, you have to turn this into action. Mm-hmm. And he uh, treated that seriously enough that at age 16, he said, come on, son, we're going to go down to Montgomery, Alabama and be part of the Selma to Montgomery March. And I learned that those few days of marching in Alabama, that uh, it's one thing to talk the talk, it's another thing to walk the walk. And that was a very, very challenging and fear-inducing walk because there were people on the streets that were not happy to see us walking there. And so he taught me a lot about the fact that it's one thing to sort of, you know, those that can do and those that can't teach. He, he was a teacher that could do. And that's the model I looked after my whole life. That's a super solid answer. I really, I really like that story. All right. So today's topic is the education of future business leaders, which we all have a vested interest in. And I guess we want to start by asking you to just tell us a tiny bit about your work. So you're teaching at a business school. What are you teaching? What does that look like? Tell us a little bit more. So just to fill in the picture, so at at most business schools, you're teaching students roughly around 28 years old who have had about five years work experience who are doing a two-year MBA. And I've been doing that for for almost 40 years. And in the case of Columbia Business School, I brought my whole field of interest to it, which is about managing change, leading change, organizational change. And I teach a course there, sort of a foundational course called Organizational Change, in which I expose a wide range of students to the whole issue of how you handle COPE lead change in organizations. Those students at the end of that course, with great uh, flattery to me, said that we need more. We need more. (laughs) And that's when I developed the course that I hope we'll we'll get to talk about, which I not so cleverly named Advanced Organizational Change, but use that as the opportunity to really think about what uh, are these students going to do who are going to, in fact, be doers and play a role as leaders in the future to advance those organizations. And at first, the topic was really about advanced change management, to be better at change management. But the more I got into it, the more I realized the real topic was about advanced organizations and how do we prepare people to either join in or to help create the organization of the future. That's been my main dedication for the last four or five years in particular, is preparing this generation for new kinds of organizations, not just fitting them into kind of an old model. So I guess, how did this all begin? How do you go from walking the bridge to teaching advanced organizational change? So the journey, I think, probably had two seminal experiences that I, I would, I would uh, recall. One, and they're, they're both about the fit between so-called person and organization. That's sort of the, the theme, is how do we optimize that fit between person and organization, and who needs to adjust to whom? And the two examples are, one was a merger of two state hospitals. It seemed like a perfectly uh, tame kind of situation. It made sense for a variety of reasons to take these two and bring them into one. But I realized that it was about as far from one plus one equaling three as you could get. And it was one plus one is probably less than two. And I began to discover that people get in the way of organizations and organizations get in the way of people. And that match was not very good. And I thought, well, there needs to be a better way. The second was that I 
interviewed, I, I had an early, early in my career sort of had a, a consulting situation, which I was asked to interview employees in a pharma company. And I interviewed this one employee for about 45 minutes, and he was so down and out about everything happening in his organization. The boss was terrible. The peers were terrible. He was underappreciated and overworked. He didn't understand what the strategy of the organization, on and on and on. And I said to myself, finally, I got to ask this guy, why are you staying in this organization? If it's this bad, why don't you leave? And he basically said to me, I don't really know, but I can't really leave. And I said, well, no, why, why don't you leave? Well, I, I, I don't know where I would go. And I said to myself then, I need to find a way to help the next generation of leaders be involved in organizations much more productively than these two examples. The merger that didn't work, the individual feeling so, so disengaged, that can't be the way to go when most of our, our lives are spent in our workplaces pre-pandemic, but most of our lives were spent in workplaces. So both of those became sort of seminal touchstones for me saying, there's got to be a better way. There has to be a better way. One thing that brings up for me, I I work in and around another MBA program that's close to home for me in Durham, North Carolina. And one question that I that I sit with, and I'm curious as someone who's an insider, what your view is on this. I notice that a lot of students are Uh, interested in and being prepared for and studying ways of being successful in traditional organizations, in bureaucratic organizations, in very hierarchical organizations. And yet the future of work is beginning to, and we're hoping eventually does look very, very different. And it sounds like you have a real orientation toward adaptive orgs and adaptive leaders and all of that stuff. What's the balance there for people who obviously are coming into these programs because they have aspirations and probably have aspirations that look like a more traditional corporate ladder, even as we know the world is changing. Like, like how do you think about that and what they need and how you prepare them and how you sort of square those two polarities? So that's been sort of the core question I've been asking is, you know, where do these folks want to go and what value, what, what are they going to either bring to that or do for those new organizations? Yeah. So let, first of all, a little reminder about what's happened. I mean, I've been teaching in the MBA program for many years. And, you know, initially you had a lot of people that were aiming for the large traditional organizations, the GEs, the IBMs, the, the you know, the uh, blessed memory AT&Ts and all of that. <laughs> And the reality is those are not the organizations these students are going for. You know, when I when I occasionally slip back into one Jack Welch story, their eyes are going, you know, three times around their head. Uh-huh. They, they don't know the, the Jack Welch year, much less, you know, go back to our friend of making giants learn to dance at uh, elephants learn to dance at uh, IBM, Lou Gerstner. So the reality is they're going to very different profile of organizations today. So my expectation was they're going to go to more startups tech, you know, more cutting edge kind of organizations, this kind of material about the organization of the future, the one that Aaron writes about, the one that I write about, the one that I teach about, I figured they would jump on it. They would be Mm. absolutely keen. I'd have to kind of hold them off at the door from their excitement. And what I discovered in the early years of teaching the course, I've been teaching this course now for, I think, six years, is that it was, they had some aspirations. You're right, Rodney, but they also had debt. 
and mm. they had debt <laughs> in a way that they said, you know, that all sounds great, but for at least the next few years, I got to pay off my school loans. Yeah, of course. I need to be sure I have a boss that's going to give me a promotion soon so I can get even further faster. And I also need to have a job that is actually a concrete job. And so when I put in front of them Zappos with, you know, Holacracy or other kinds of where Spotify with Agile and Scrums and Squads and this and that, they said, yeah, I, that sounds pretty interesting. Theoretically, it's interesting, but that's not going to give me much confidence in paying off my loan. So in the early years of this course, what I discovered was I actually was the biggest proponent of the new kind of organization. And they were the (laughs) the detractors. And I said, wait a minute, something's wrong with this picture. Because you all are still 28 and you're 28 each year I see you and I'm getting older. And somehow it should be me being the fuddy-duddy and you being the sort of advanced core. But it wasn't. It wasn't. So I'll tell you a little bit more about it, but I had to switch it off. So part of what you're saying, Rodney, was true. In some ways, they were more traditional and conservative than I expected. And they were even traditional and conservative vis-a-vis, look, it may not be perfect, those old traditional organizations, but they're the known evil. And I'd rather go to the known place than this unknown. Quirky Tony Shea of real blessed memory. Quirky Ray Dalio at Bridgewater. Quirky this, quirky that. Maybe IBM doesn't look too bad right now. It's at least looking more solid. That's chapter one of the story. I guess what I'm curious about based on that is you know, as you then engaged with them, let's stay in chapter one here, where students are still kind of pushing back against you and skeptical. As you engage them over the course of days or weeks, was there change? Was there a place where it gave a little bit? Was there was there any kind of awareness? Or did it just feel like, yeah, we're not really getting anywhere now. And we're gonna have to wait for the next crop. Listen, Aaron, if I spent my entire career educating people and there was no discernible difference, I would be, you know, I, I'd be I'd be jumping off that bridge. So, you know, being being an educator, I have to b- b- convince myself and believe that I will always be getting through to them in some way. So, yes, it's it it is a bit of a it, it is a bit of a journey. So to to answer your question specifically in the early years of the course, by the way, when you said weeks or months. This is an unusual course. It is five days in a row, eight hours a day. They take no other course at this time. So I actually have their undivided attention for 40 hours. So mm. it's, it's, it's a lot. So surely in that time, there are some ups and downs of their journey. So if you thought about just a bell curve distribution, there are probably some that from the beginning just said, ah, this is a little, this is a bridge too far. And they you know, basically kind of are, are never convinced. There are some who from the beginning said, I think this is fabulous. And it's the mass in the middle that I think is the key key kind of barometer of this. And what I found was they began to see aspects of it that really appealed to them. So it may not be the whole of what you call the evolutionary organization, and I call it management 2.0, but they're parts that really interest them. For example, a constant feedback is very appealing. I'd like to be in an organization that gives me constant feedback. Not as much as Bridgewater that records the meetings. That's a little too far. But I would like to have a boss that does give me feedback. You know, or I'd like to be more involved in the strategy thinking process. I'd like to be not a, a lower a lower level peon. I'd actually like to have more inclusion. So there are aspects of it. But when it came to the holacracy model and sort of transforming the whole way in which the organization is managed, that became a little bit more challenging. So some were intrigued with aspects of it. And I would say net, net, I have to at least convince myself, net, net, even in those early years, there was certainly much more positive view of all of it by the time the week the week was over. But still, it was feeling like I was pushing at them. 
I didn't feel like I was just catching up to them. I felt like they were at most the catching up to me. And so I felt, okay, I need to, I need to work some more at this. And guess just, just the segue to that is the world helped me out because there were more and more examples that were non-quirky and non-situationally sort of explainable that began to say, no, this is happening cross industries, small and large companies, startup and traditional companies, this kind of boss, that kind of boss, no bossing. The head of Novartis says we're going to have unbossed organizations. Novartis is going to have unbossed <laughs> in, a, in a regulated atmosphere. And all of a sudden, it was a little hard to say, well, it's just crazy old Zappos. And that's what began to turn the tide to this is happening far more uh, frequently and far more convincingly than six years ago, five years ago. That mm. began to turn the tide. That that brings up the question for me. I, I understand the skepticism and the cynicism and that it's easy to dismiss organizations that seem fringe. That being said, for these folks who have worked maybe in more traditional organizations for five years or more, a little less, like, do they think that's working? To me, that's, that's always the convincing argument is like, hey, look around. Do you want more of this, what, what we have now? Because like... It, it doesn't seem great. Like you're having a hard time maintaining stock price, productivity, revenue, jobs. We're doing a layoff every year so that we can make the number that the board needs to see. Like, like most of us who have come from big old school systems are pretty aware that there's a lot about them that doesn't work, even if we're skeptical about something that seems fringe. How do the students show up to those discussions? So Rodney, where were you when I needed you? Because that was, in <laughs> fact, the breakthrough transition that began to open it up, is I thought to myself, instead of my sort of just assuming they're ready for that new organization, instead of my trying to convince them that, they're, that, that they need it, I said, let's look at the, today's organization yeah. and tell me what you think of it. And so we, I, in the sort of middle phase of this course, maybe year three, year four, it's now again six or seven, I basically said, let's start day one with a hackathon. You have the opportunity to design the ideal organization for you. Think about mm -hmm. the way things are now and think about the kind of organization you would prefer to work in. And as they took the ownership over designing their own future, it began to appear a lot more like 2.0. It began mm -hmm. to appear a lot more like the new organization. So their emergence of their visible dissatisfaction with the status quo helped them then to search for an alternative. Now, again, it's difficult to prove that the alternative is better. Because that's, you know, that's part of the issue. If you can't prove a future, a future situation, you can only kind of make some assumptions. But that became the breakthrough construct. And I think you, you're right on it, Rodney. I think for people, they need to go on their own journey to see and construct, co-create their own futures rather than, and, and no, no aspersions on Aaron's book or any of the other books that we're all writing and reading. <laughs> Feel free. But it won't, it won't be from a book. It's from their own discovery process. And that's what I began to do. And that changed the barometer of the class significantly. I think we have, you know, we have a very similar sort of pattern in the work that we do. Leaders show up and, and read the book or hear a talk and they're like, that seems really cool, but it won't work here. And then when you get into a more nuanced conversation about what's actually happening in their organization that is serving them or holding them back, 
pretty quickly they root into their own problems and are like, yeah, well, maybe we can't go that far, but like this sucks what we're doing now. So we could do something that's different. Yeah. I I added one other thing to it, Rodney. I mean, I added the examples of things that people would say it can't happen here or not, you know, it it won't work here. And that turned out to be successful. You know, so who came up with the idea that here's a great idea. Why don't I open my home up to strangers to sleep in my bed for, you know, eight nights a year, 30 nights a year, et cetera. Everybody's going to love that. Bring strangers into your home and let them sleep in your bed. You know, (laughs) about as crazy. Oh yeah. Okay. What's your second idea? Because that one, (laughs) that one we're rejecting, you know, or, you know, any other versions of what, you know, Spotify was premised on or, you know, WeWork or any of these other places that seemed crazy to begin with. And what I said to the students in the first day is, I'd at least like you to open your minds up to the possibilities of these before we reject them. Mm-hmm. Uh, live with them. You know, uh, ask more about them. Be curious about them. And then we can critique and judge, et cetera. But first, open your minds up because too many good ideas have been rejected at the get-go and we missed out. And the ones that had perseverance have turned out in many cases to be spectacularly successful. That makes sense. And I also feel like what lands with people, although I don't know if it lands with students, is, yeah, if you start with a Zappos or a Spotify or something that's very fresh and modern, it does feel unproven and it does feel tenuous. But like, there are cases that go back and back. I mean, I have a new course steel book sitting next to me right now that's 30 years old. You can talk about Morningstar, you can talk about W.L. Gore, you can talk about companies that have been around for decades that have been thinking and acting this way just in the shadows. And that starts to make it feel a little bit more established, but also perhaps a little bit more surprising that it hasn't caught on. So I don't know how broad the case history is that y'all talk about, but I'd be curious to hear how students react to some of those multi-decade stories. Well, I think that's a very good observation that, you know, again, the richness is not only in today's tapestry, but also historically. And in fact, you know, again, I've been in this field for 40 years, and those very examples you're talking about were part of participative management that I Mm -hmm. studied in the 1970s, uh, you know, and that were really, you know, seemingly the cutting edge those days. And a number of those did sort of disappear. So part of it is, yeah, they were really good ideas, but they disappeared, or they didn't catch on enough. Or what about that employee, that ESOP, the Employee Stock Ownership Plan? That seemed like a great idea. And that gives people more of a sense of ownership. But how many of those you know, c- came to be? So I think it's a glass half empty, glass half full mm-hmm. issue, Aaron, because on the one hand, you're right. There is a, a legacy of this, and there is a much richer tapestry if you look longitudinally as well as uh, uh, you know, kind of t- temporally today. But I'm not sure it, it, it proves the point. It just says, I end up with this punchline. We are needing to do experimentation. We are needing to look for laboratories of organizations because as Rodney said, the current state is not sustainable. Yes, it has sustained. Thank you, Frederick Winslow Taylor. Mm-hmm. But it hasn't really sustained in terms of uh, a, 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 hum- a human-centered organization. It hasn't sustained in terms of adaptability. It hasn't sustained in terms of management models that speak to sort of you know current values of millennials who want the coaching, who want organizations that believe in something you know beyond the, the sort of immediate monthly results. And so we're now at this sort of critical juncture where I think you know we are again experimenting and seeking new models, and the momentum is going our way. That's why I'm much more optimistic and confident with my millennials, because by the time they finished, they were extremely hopeful and optimistic. Yes, still skeptical about this, that, and the other. But overall, 
much more enthusiastic. And by the way, one of the things they said is these organizations that are democratizing will benefit them too, because mm-hmm. otherwise they're just junior, you know, nothing burgers at the bottom of the organization. And in fact, these organizations are saying there's no such thing as a nothing burger. What there is, is if you have something to offer, offer it from wherever mm-hmm. you are. And with whatever background. And that opens up the door to these students who really do want to offer. So in many ways, the organizations are also coming to them with conditions that are going to give them many more opportunities than they would have had in those traditional organizations sort of fitting themselves as a a cog and a wheel. If you love what you're hearing, a review would mean so much to us. Or even better, please forward our show to someone who needs it. So... I guess I'm wondering now what's changed, right? So you said six years ago, skeptical. You just, before our brief review request, talked about more openness, more hunger. What do you think happened? And and what's the character of the students today? So some of the students have been a part of startups in their four or five years of work experience, where they've seen some aspects of this occurring, and that's that gives them more confidence in the models because they've seen it a bit for themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're not as interested in those large traditional organizations for a variety of reasons, but it includes the fact that maybe they are just a bit too bureaucratic. Maybe they don't provide the opportunities of this generation. Remember, this generation is going to be the dominant demographic in organizations. Uh, If not right now, it's going to be by 2030. (laughs) I've seen the stats on that. I don't remember what the percentage is, but it's a large percentage. So they realize that they are going to be in positions in organizations numerically and hopefully by virtue of their authority, where they'll be able to do something different. And the question is, what what are they going to do? And it does begin to be more and more appealing when they see across all these different industries, these much more, you know, multitude of examples that it can happen. And, you know, this year in the course, I took a big risk, Aaron. I actually assigned them to read an entire book an entire book. <laughs> Huge now, mistake. M- getting MBAs to read an entire book, you know, was basically risking my entire career. But fortunately, I'm on the back nine. I figured I could take that risk. <laughs> so what I what I said was, here's what you're going to do. You're going to read one of three books. You're going to read Aaron's book, because I think that's really interesting about Brave New Work. You're going to read the new book about Netflix by uh, our friends Aaron Meyer and Reed Hastings. And you're going to read Humanocracy. You'll read one of the three, And you'll listen to a webcast or a podcast about the other two. And you will become an expert in that area. So unlike previous years, they actually could see a full-fledged analysis and to some extent, you know, manifestos about this, but with more and more examples. You have an appendix with like 200 organizations listed. Netflix is page after page after page saying, here's how we did it. Here's where we stumbled. Here's how we responded. And so it's real life kind of examples. And humanocracy is going into those large organizations saying, how does a large appliance company from China called Hire, you know, bring this entire new kind of micro enterprise model into being? And here it is. Let's spell it out. How does New Core Steel do it? So by the time they got exposed to all three books, having read one fully and, and, and listened to their peers about it, as well as listened to podcasts and webcasts, they actually said, you know, there's more convincing evidence. So the evidence now and the visualization of these futures is more apparent. So you can see it much more clearly and therefore imagine yourself in it. And as I say, they also were impressed with the fact that part of the evidence is that junior folks can make a difference. One of them, one of them said to me something like, the best thing we can do, and this is thanks to you, Aaron, is just start asking questions. So it's not, 
am I going to design a whole organization like Hire to be, you know, multiple micro enterprises? It's where I am in my organization. Let me start by asking some questions. Let me make some small changes in language. Thank you, Captain David Marquet, who you've had on your podcast. Let me just change the language. I can do that from where I am. That doesn't require, you know, multi, multi millions of dollars of investments. So they began to see practical ways in which they could do their own experimentation. They could tiptoe into this and make a difference. And now they see what the payoff is. So this year I began to get comments at the end that I had I had never never seen before. Really look forward to being in a, in a workplace which emphasizes empowerment and autonomy. It's going to be great to make more room for human judgment in organizations. <laughs> Makes me feel confident I can find allies to experiment. Mm-hmm. I'm not alone in this. There are other people doing it. And those words I hadn't heard before. And that was where I became much more encouraged that maybe I, I finally gotten either I've gotten, I've worn them down, possibly I've worn <laughs> them down, or maybe the times have changed. And I'm going with the second, second explanation. I think the times have changed. There, there's much more of a wave of this approach that's happening that is going to provide opportunities for this next generation of leaders. And these were, these were students, admittedly, who were excited about organizational change. That's why they had taken my course before and they wanted more. But now they're excited about what kind of organizational change, not just how to change, but what kind of changes. And that, to me, was the big change. So that's a great segue into something else that I wanted to ask you about, Todd. Just, you know, I hold some assumptions that younger generations are more progressive than older generations, which on balance, I think is true. Perhaps in specific, it's not as true. But if we just assume for the sake of this conversation that that is true, you know, one of the things that we've talked about on this show and we talk a lot about at the ready is systemic justice and the ways in which organizations in the world are designed by and for specific groups of privileged people and the ways in which having more democratized and more participatory and more evolutionary organizations are likely also to include more people who have not traditionally been power holders. My assumption would be that this idea would be appealing to young people younger than me. Does that show up in your course? Is that part of the conversation with these students? So that was probably deep background through 2020, meaning I teach the course in January, so through January 2020. This past January, which is just a few weeks ago now, that was front and center. Mm. That was front and center. And in that, in, to that extent, again, the millennials are sort of known for, you're right, sort of different generational values. And one of them is about being a part of work that is meaningful and organizations that stand for something, mm-hmm. that have some sort of a purpose, as it's called. And we spent a day talking about those very issues. And we use the example of Google and other organizations that are struggling with the question of, you know, do you bring, you know, politics into the workplace? And do you bring larger kind of societal matters and problems? And obviously, everything having to do with DEI. Mm -hmm. And you're right by saying that these students are far more committed to that. And in fact, if you look at surveys of millennials, you talk about next generation leaders, Aaron, the item that they say they will leave organizations as a result of is if organizations are not DEI sensitive and, and, and action oriented. In other words, again, as I said earlier, you know, walking the walk, Mm -hmm. that's the one that they will, in fact, that that's their red line. Uh, uh, You know, we won't, we won't tolerate that. It's not that we can, you know, wink, wink on that as long as I get a pay raise. No, Mm -hmm. if that organization really doesn't stand for something and in fact violates 
these kind of social norms, I'm out of here. And I heard more and more of that. So, you know, one level, it's a sort of me, me, me. I want feedback. I want prizes. I want <laughs> right. that award, et cetera. We, we sure. got that on the, you know, the sort of indulge millennial. And by the way, they, they hate it when you talk about that. Then there's the millennials version, which says, you know, they're very social media conscious. They know how to write tweets, but they don't know how to have conversations. There's that sort of little hit on the millennials. But if you look at the affirmative side of it, it's they stand for something. I mean, one of my students wrote at the end, through management 2.0, that's my term, we millennials are trying to create the workplace that boomers wish they had but could never ask for. Mm-hmm. We're trying to create the workplace that boomers, and I'm in that boomer generation, you know, preached in the 1960s while I was walking in Montgomery, Alabama. But then we sort of you know, fit into the IBMs and the GEs and the AT&Ts. Mm-hmm. And they're saying, that's not the way we want to do it. That's not the way we want to do it. And we want organizations to stand for something more, and we want to be sure to be a part of that. So I, I, I think it's, you know, as, as anything, there's a distribution of, of values and, 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 and uh, priorities. But as a generation, the sort of more modal example is one that you were describing that I'm describing. Given what you've learned and observed over the last six years, what are you going to do next? Is it going to stay a one-week intensive? Is there room for it to become something more? Will you change the, the pattern of what you've done or now double down on the recipe from this year? I'm just curious, what's next for this mission? You know, it's only you, Aaron, that would ask that question. Here I am declaring victory. I finally got, a, I finally got across the finish line. I said, okay, that's what you did yesterday. What are you doing for tomorrow? But what's next? What, is, what, 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 what have you got next? I mean, I, you know, to tell you the truth, I want to continue to ride the wave. The fact that it has grown as it has, and there are more and more examples. I had them do, I had them in project teams do something interesting that I think helps me maybe to, to answer your question. I had four different projects, divided the group in four. One of them was, I want you to study large organizations that have transformed. Large traditional organizations, how have they done it? What have they done? ING, HCL, Eli Lilly, Novartis, Patagonia, whatever it is, large organizations. Then I said, another group, you look at startups. Tell me what it's like to build these from the get-go. You look at Asana and you look at Zappos and you look at HubSpot and this and that. Third group, I want you to look at consulting firms that are making a living off this subject. Look at the Ready, look at McKinsey, look at BCG, look at August, look at all these firms that are growing with this material and tell us what they're offering as services and are they growing. And the fourth is look at the toolboxes that are being created in this field, tools that are available for any organization to begin to have an impact. And guess what? They came out with very rich material in all four of those projects. And being a very clever crowdsourcer, I said to myself, there's my material for next year's course. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm not smart enough to, you know, I'm practicing what I'm preaching. I don't have all the answers here. I want to crowdsource this. I want to co-create it. And they actually gave, I think, a wider notion of larger organizations are doing this. Let's look at more and more of them. Small organizations are building this way. Let's look at more and more of them, et cetera, et cetera. The consulting firms. I mean, the reality is it's one thing for the ready to do it. And congratulations on you and Rodney and the work of your team doing this as well as you have. But it's especially interesting when we also see the large firms that sure. are you know, kind of saying, no, 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 we want to be in this space. We're going to call it organization effectiveness or implementation or something or the new organization or the agile organization or something. And then I said, something's going on here. Now, maybe it'll get plain vanilla down and it'll sort of dissolve and we lose sort of the edge of it because Rodney said earlier, most of this originally, my first versions of the course were only fringe organizations. Now, 
I don't have fringe consulting firms. I don't have fringe large organizations. I don't have fringe startups. Spotify mm-hmm. is not exactly a fringe organization right. anymore. You know, so there's much more heft to this. And I want to keep going deeper and deeper into it. That's my goal. I've I've so many uh, so many questions that sparks for me. But one of them is we've talked a lot about the organizations and the organizational lens, and you are teaching individuals who are going to be individual leaders in these systems. Ideally, what do you see as the future of work leadership role? you know, as, as compared to what it's been, or just in terms of what you think is ideal? What do you want these people to be thinking, feeling, doing when they are in a place that they are actually trying to affect change? So Rodney, in order to answer difficult questions, I start by asking the students a question like that on a final exam. That's a very easy way to start to get some of the (laughs) ideas on that answer. So I just gave them a final exam. And the question was, what is the role? Is there a role for a manager in the future? And if so, what is it? Love it. And the short answer to that question is, we are not getting rid of managers. We are redefining. We are redefining. And instead of managers being about auditing and controlling and supervising, it's about managers being resource providers. It's about managers being provide uh, being coaches. It's about managers opening up uh, to to new vistas and seeing some best practices or crafting best practices. It's about you know what Jen Hirsch does at, at Janssen with her team to be able to kind of bring doctors and scientists into new ways of managing away from sort of the traditional hierarchical models. So I think the notion is that we are not ridding ourselves of the leadership function or the management function in a more, you know, kind of conventional title. What we're doing is redefining it. And that redefinition is is a simple word, but not a simple aspect to, to, to implement. Because again, we're much more comfortable. Again, my problem of the early years of the course is people are much more comfortable with the old vocabulary than the new vocabulary. And when David Marquet in his new book talks about, it's about the language, I think we need different language. I had a a speaker to another one of my courses who was dealing with a very low performing school system. And these are students that are really poor and, 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 and disadvantaged and this and that. And he would never use poor or disadvantaged. He described his students as scholars. These are high school students that probably had the lowest scores in the state. He described them and characterized them as scholars. And part of it is if we rename what people are doing and reclaim what their real value add is, I think we're going to see a very different model of leadership and management. That's what I'm now, again, trying to impress upon students. I don't want you fitting into the, the, the old model and being the best of the old management model. I want you to be part of the new VISTA. And I'll just say one other thing to you that, unfortunately, I occasionally actually have to practice what I'm preaching. So this course is a five-day course, and it turned out it was the week of January 6th with the uh, insurrection mm. in Washington. And I had a plan for each, eight, each of the eight hours each day. There was plenty of flex in it, but I had plans. And it got to the Wednesday. This is the third day, so I've already had them for roughly 20 hours of the 40 hours. And, um, uh, and the insurrection happens at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And one of my students puts up on the chat, they're taking, you know, the barricades have come down. They're taking over the Congress. And I had a guest speaker speaking. Now, the traditional model is we have a slot, we have a plan, mm-hmm. we have an organization, we have to continue this. And the world outside, you know, push it away. And I thought to myself, well, I can f- use that logic for about 20 minutes more. I can use that to just be polite to the speaker. And then I think I need to intervene. 
because basically the VUCA world that we all write about and preach about had just happened in my own little world of one little classroom. That stuff just came in that, that changed the whole, whole state of mind of people. And if I just stuck with the old plan, I would find myself, you know, managing. If I was going to be a new kind of leader, I was going to, first of all, co-create it with the future, co-create the plan with the students. I said, okay, here we are. Here are some choices that we have. What are other choices you think we should have? How do we approach this? And how do we continue to achieve our goals for this week, but at the same time flex to this circumstance? And Mm -hmm. guess what? We adjourned the class. We redid the, the plan for the next day. And we had a very successful next day. And they were so appreciative that I was practicing what I was preaching. That in fact, I was myself kind of leading in a way that was adaptive to the real conditions and not sort of just driving an agenda through willy-nilly. Yeah. And co-creating not just with the students, but co-creating with the environment that is throwing emergent <laughs> events yeah, at with the you. world. And I think, you know, it's a it's a great way to articulate what we see in the world, which is the shift from I as an individual leader, power holder, power hoarder, will attempt to control both the environment and all of you to we're all having the same lived experience of what is happening around us. Let's make some sense out of it, create some coherence around it, and figure out what's possible from here. And that is a really significant shift because it requires sitting in the messiness of watching stuff that we didn't predict. That's uh, you, you said it beautifully. I mean, I think it's sitting in the messiness that is really where people have to accept it and, in fact, you know, go with it and even thrive on it. That's sort of the key to this. And, you know, I'm not afraid of it. You and Aaron are not afraid of it. And I think more and more people and organizations are recognizing we have no choice. The messiness exists. Mm -hmm. And we can't make believe that we put up a wall and and somehow we keep it out. Todd, um, where can our listeners find out more about you, your course, your work? So just look up Todd Jick, Columbia Business School, and you'll have both my email and information about what I do. And I'd be delighted to respond to any of your listeners. Delighted to do that. J-I-C-K, Jack with an I. Todd, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you both very much. It's just just a delight to have this conversation. A quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin, as always, for making us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work and try to create some spots for those future students. Uh, You can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something. 